0: Welcome to Adoption Now, sharing real stories of the joys and challenges of adoption. Now, here's the host of Adoption Now, April Fallon.
1: Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Adoption Now is a nonprofit telling adoption stories, and they're all different. Here, we're not really looking for opinions, we're looking for experiences. We believe that through your experience, people can connect and learn about adoption and so today we have a really special story and I'm I'm so excited about it because I think it's going to help a lot of people and I think the people that we have invited here to talk about foster care are very open and honest and so I'm looking forward to the show Jeremiah and Jenny thank you so much for being here thank you thank you so let's just jump right into your story you guys have three biological children correct why did you choose adoption
0: Uh, in short because Jesus because he chose us and uh, I know that sounds spiritual but uh, it it really is the truth from the time Jenny and I were married when we were 23 and 21 we uh, we just had a heart to adopt we wanted to bring a, uh, a kid into our home and we when we when we got married we just started having biological children like right away and so You know, eight or nine years in, we had three biological kids, and we decided it was time to to stop having biological kids and to start adopting.
1: So when did you start the process, Jenny? When our youngest
2: was about one, we decided it was time to get started in the process because we knew it would take a long time. So um, in December, we did our orientation with Project 127. We did all of our training that spring. Um, We submitted our application to Denver County in December of the following year, and we got our first phone call, who is now our son, in April of the next year.
1: So the whole process took just over a year. So let's talk about that process with foster care, because it's a little bit different than you know, doing a domestic or international adoption. What I'm confused about is why do you use another party? Why doesn't the state do a home study? We did our home study with the state,
2: actually. Um, there are a few different ways you can do it. You can choose an agency, and the agency can be your advocate, and they can do the home study for you, um, or you can go directly to the county. Um, the, if you do go directly to the county, you have, you're have you a little higher on their list of calls. Um, they usually go to their own families first for placement before they would call an agency and look for families so we chose to do it that way because we wanted to be higher on the list. Uh, we were eager to get, you know, this ball rolling. And um, so they actually assigned us a case study person who came out to our home and did it for us.
0: But they allow for a third party to do some of the training, which is what we went to Project 127 for. Okay. So that that way we got the training from a Christian perspective, Um because we just we kind of knew what would come if we just went to the county and got the training from them, um, and so we we tried to to expose ourselves to as much from a Christian perspective as we could, and yet allow them to do the home study. So that's where Project One Twenty Seven comes in.
2: Right, okay. and later on in the process, after we had finished and we were with Denver County, and we had to do more trainings, we did do those through the county, and they were very different, and we hated them.
1: Oh, really? Yes. So you would prefer to go through Project 127?
2: Yes, absolutely. A Christian perspective is always better. Um, The county was, they didn't like us because we were a Christian family who was looking to bring children into our home. And we just felt um, a little bit picked on
1: uh, during our, our trainings through them. Does it cost money? Does it cost you money? to do this process?
0: Not a lot. I mean, that's one of the huge benefits of going through uh, Foster to Adopt is that it, I mean, it definitely cost us money, but it it was minimal.
1: And during your preparation, did they tell you once you guys become live or once everything is done, how long you would wait?
2: Yes, they give estimates. Um, They do say you'll never really know, but usually counties in Colorado um, try to have permits permanency within 12 months. And so that's what we were told is, uh, you would expect a phone call within, you know, two to six months. And then if a child came into your home and there was termination of parental rights, you'd be looking at about a year to permanency. And
1: so were you able to say, this is the
2: child that we're looking for? This is the age? Yes, we were able to, um, given age range, we were able to, basically there's a big long checklist of everything you're willing to take and that you're not willing to take in a child. And so we filled out the long checklist. We were looking for a little boy uh, between three and six years old. And um, we were open to any ethnicity. We were open to any behavioral problems. Uh, The only thing that we said we weren't open to was um, sexual abuse because we did not feel like we were um, capable of handling that in our home with our biological kids.
0: And physical, like extreme physical handicaps too. We we just didn't feel like we were equipped to handle that either.
1: Okay, so now looking back, and I'm going to ask you guys some real questions. Looking back, did the state follow that? No.
0: No, not at all.
1: So why ask parents to even fill that
0: out? To probably to protect themselves, I would guess. Um, they... Um they knew things that they say they didn't know, but there was no way they couldn't have known them. Um, it's, it, it, you know, in the one hand, you you have sympathy for them because they're trying to move these children through the system, and they're trying to do the best they can. but at the uh, on the other hand, they're using um, they're using techniques like like uh, like that to not not disclose everything that they know in order just to get a kid off. It's like, it's like they're trying to get a file off their desk as opposed to trying to find a home for a child.
1: So you feel that they kind of just said, hey, we just have a need and we just want these people to meet it, in your case, when they called you with the first one? I would say a little bit. I
2: do think that they were um, looking to just get him out of his situation as quickly as they could. And so um, they were willing to maybe not disclose everything. They did at the time when they called us say that we chose you even though you were not on the top of the list because we were looking for a family with siblings for this little boy and we were looking for a mom that was home and that could stay home with him because he basically needed full constant supervision and he had zero social interaction and he needed to be in a home with other kids who could teach him how to... Um, interact in a social situation without hurting anyone. So how old was your youngest at that time? She was three and four months and he was
1: three and a half. They are only two months apart. But he's
2: older. He's two months older.
1: So how did you feel? We talk about this a lot. We always say, okay, so don't push the birth order. Don't mess that up. Although there are people that do it, and you guys did. How do? You, what advice do you give for families who are thinking of doing that? Does it work? Is it harder? <clears throat> it is definitely harder.
2: We had talked to a family before uh, who had disrupted birth order, and they had told us— um, that it had been difficult, but that they had managed it in their family. And so we felt comfortable going forward, and we chose to disrupt birth order. We chose to have a little boy who was closer to our biological son's age. Um, What we didn't expect is for our youngest and then our adopted son to be so close in age. And that, I think, is something that um, we probably regret and that will be difficult in the long run. Um, He is very delayed uh, compared to Lily, and um, he is older than her, but he will always kind of be behind her in school, and it's been hard. It's hard when you can't just say, you know what, she's older, and that's why she gets to do this, or the reason she's in first grade and you're in kindergarten is because she's older. When he's older and he has uh, things that he's just not able to
1: do yet because of his developmental Delays. Delays. So after you guys finished in that year, they called you. How long did you wait?
0: I'm not sure what you mean.
1: Okay. So you started the process. You're done with your home study. Yep. How long did you wait before you got that call? Four months. Yeah. Four months. And so you brought him home Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and tell us about that. This is kind of a funny story.
0: So we, uh, for some reason I had always had my uh, heart set on adopting a, you know, African American son and, uh, so we got I got the phone call while I was at work, and you know they give you kind of a list of questions that you're supposed to ask, and um, you know one of the first questions I asked is what was his name, and they said uh, Jerome, and so I asked no further questions when it came to ethnicity because <laughs> I thought the matter was settled. Um, so we went and picked him up, and uh, you know we were pretty pumped. We went to the department, and I walked into the department, and there was this little. Uh, you know, Caucasian half Hispanic kid right at the front door of the department. And he was about two or three years old. And I kind of just walked by him. I think I even patted him on the head and said, Hey, buddy. And then I just kept walking. <laughs> and, uh, and then like you
1: were walking towards your child. Yes. Yeah, so I was like walking towards child. my
0: future, walking past this child. And
1: you walked right past
2: him and up to the desk. And you're yeah. we like, Hi, we're here to pick up Jerome. And they were like,
0: that's, That's Jerome him, right there. Over by the
2: door. <laughs> and we just looked at each other shocked because he he's um, Hispanic, Caucasian, but he looks like this little, he looks like he could be our son. Like he is Caucasian with freckles and
1: we were just very surprised.
0: So like immediately I just felt like the stupid white guy in the room.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Jerome is not really, right. Right. you know. On the way, we even name. Googled. Because I was like, are you sure that
2: you didn't ask any questions? And so we sat on our phones and we Googled. um, Jerome was, in fact, usually an African-American name. And sure enough, all of our Google search results said it was. And so we were like, oh, great, we're good. Like, this is going to be... The right. Little boy, Hugo we... failed you. It did. <laughs>
0: it Did well. Yeah. We failed us. Yes. Sorry, my that. own, my own stupidity failed me. But it was, it, you know, obviously it was God's plan to right.
2: And I think uh, we probably wouldn't have said yes if we would have known yeah, at that time that's true. because we kind of had our heart set on. Uh, we knew that there was a need for families willing to take in African American boys at that time, and we were really wanting to meet that need. And so I don't think we would have said yes if we would have known that he was a Caucasian little boy.
1: Okay. So, and you know, a lot of people say, well, because we said the same thing and they're like, that's the weirdest thing that you are white and you're saying that you will only take African American at the time when it was our first child. And it's like, this is our call. Like, this is what we know we're supposed to do. And my husband said to the social worker, well, don't people say the other way? don't Caucasian people say we will only take Caucasian kids? And they're like, yeah. And he said, well, then it's the same thing. You know, we're just saying a different race and what we're called to. And obviously, um, so when people are listening and they're like, hey, wait a second, they only said that? Well, yeah, that's what was in their hearts, but God had a different plan. Um, So you walk right past him. And then what? You just bring him home? Yeah, it was crazy.
0: It was crazy. They didn't even
1: sign a piece
2: of paper.
0: Right. They like handed us him. They said he peed his pants a couple of times. And so we had to change him and here's your, here he is. (laughs) We'll call you in a couple of days. And so we like, he was, he was three and a half at the time. So, you know, he could walk and stuff. He could not speak at all. Like he knew one or two words. Um,
1: wait, was he three and a half or two and a half? Three and a half. Three and a half. And Lily was three and four months. Yes. Okay.
0: And so, yeah, we just put him in the back of our car and it was crazy. Even then, uh, he was, they they had warned us how, like, hyper he was. I mean, he was, they said he was sh- screaming like they've never heard before. Um, he was, you know, crying and shouting. Even in the department, he was running all over the place. And then we got him in our car, put him in the back seat, put him in the child seat, and he passed out. Like
2: Exhausted from the morning. Yeah. How did they find him? What's his backstory? He had kind of been in the system since birth, being watched since birth. His uh, birth mom had been a foster child herself and she had um, had a rough childhood. And so even in the hospital, um, people were concerned about her going home with a small child. Uh, Over the first few years of his life, he had spent time homeless. He had um, been called, Child Protective Services had been called on them multiple times, but nothing had really come to fruition. Um, There was one time before he was removed and came home with us where he was removed for a very short amount of time. And this was his second removal. And uh, he had, there had been more or new concerns about abuse in the home. And they had um, known they were going to remove him that morning. They had called us the night before to say, get ready. Uh, We are going to be taking this little boy from his school tomorrow morning. And
1: we need you to come pick him up. And that was all we knew at that time. So he had been with his birth mother the whole time. The whole time. So that's a big change for him. Do you think he attached to his birth mother? He was extremely attached to his birth mother. She loved him. She
2: still loves him. She never, that was never an issue in their home. The love. Um, the attachment. The the issue in the home was that she um, was had her own cognitive delays and was unable to care for a small child.
1: I think what's really difficult is understanding that when you step into a foster care situation, you, you don't bring the child home and they don't say, hi, mom and dad. Thanks for saving me. Wow, this looks a lot better here they're grieving, they're confused, they're sad. And do you feel like the training that you got prepared you for that?
0: I don't think any amount of training can prepare you for that. It's one of those things that nobody could possibly relate to or be ready for unless they've walked through it themselves. So, I mean, I, I just don't think that they're the when it comes to Project 127 and things like that, some of the things they could have done better is maybe not... Um, parade the success stories out in front of us as like, which is what they did. Uh, They, they could have, they could have put people out in in the classes that have had really, really difficult roads um, that maybe even didn't end well. Maybe that could have prepared us better, but I I truly believe nothing can prepare you uh, for it unless you walk through it.
2: No, you never think you're story is going to be the hard one, right? Always when you're going into the adoption process, you're always hopeful that this is going to work. And we are going to become a family and this little boy, we're going to love him and he's going to love us. And we are going to walk forward into the future with, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And there is no um, I don't think anyone could tell you just so you know, you're going to have the hard story and and that you would believe it that early on. Now we've had the hard story, and we do, um, we are open and honest with other people who are going into the adoption process to say it is hard.
1: How do you do that without talking people out of it?
0: I try to talk people out of it. You do? Yeah, I do. I try to talk people out of it and say, unless you have heard the voice of God so clearly um, that this is for you then you need to not do it, because that is the only thing that has gotten us through this, is being able to cling to the promises of God and that say, do this despite the fact it's hard, I will be there for you. Because what happens is when I hear the voice of God and I go in the direction of doing what he tells me to do, I expect it to then be easy because he told me to do it, so it's gonna be easy. But this, ha- foolishly, I expect that. But this isn't, its is, there's not a single part of it that is easy. Or fun, or that even feels like it. Like in the moment, this is worth it. It's all. It's almost all. Um, this is hard, but, but God, <laughs> you know.
1: Okay, so talk to me about that first year, because it was a very difficult transition. Yes, it was a difficult year
2: because um, we had a development developmentally delayed birth mom, who was getting some extra time and extra help from the county that was um, making the process move extremely slow. So we were 19 months in before termination, where normally the county says at 12 months, we need to have permanency. And we were at an
1: 18-month hearing, and we still had no permanency, Okay, so you have the child that you've been told is going to be adoptable, and now the state is pushing it way out, giving her chance after chance. So he's not only trying to adjust with you, he's now seeing his birth mother and kind of going backwards, but also he has severe trauma and these issues that you also have to deal with at home, even if he wasn't seeing her. I mean, how did you handle that chaos, and how did the kids handle it? It was very
2: difficult. There were... Um, because of her developmental delays, the visits, which were two to three times a week, sometimes for up to six to eight hours, were in her home where the abuse had taken place. So we were essentially sending him back into the environment where he was abused and traumatized multiple times a week. And then he would be generally okay there. We would bring him home and our family would deal with the repercussions of that trauma for hours and hours and days until we had to do it again so we were never out of the trauma cycle that whole first year
1: why did the state do that why do they do that
0: i mean from their perspective they have to make every effort to reunify and so they we felt i mean obviously we were biased because we only cared about joshua's well-being
1: um you changed his name it's just because everyone's like Jerome,
0: oh right. Joshua, yes, he has yes, we changed his name, um, and so we only cared about his well-being. Well, the state can't just care about his well-being; they have to attempt to reunify. Um, the The issue we had was that it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, and so the, it just took them a long time to move it from the goal being reunification to the goal being permanency. But you had asked uh, how our kids handled that time and. I think that that was like one of our success stories is, um, our biological kids handled it with a grace towards him. It was like a natural grace. Like we were so impressed by the way that they handled and and loved on him and just treated him like a sibling. They did not treat him any differently whatsoever for the good or for the bad. And meanwhile, Jenny and I are having this like emotional tornado every week that we were having such difficulty working through, but we could look at our kids and say, well, at least they're loving him like he deserves to be loved. Uh, So that was like a really just, you know, all these verses in the Bible about um, loving like a child and and faith like a child and all these things. That was a model, an absolute model of of that for us.
2: Mm -hmm. And it wasn't easy for them. He, you know, had not had the social interaction, and so he was very aggressive and violent, and he hurt them every day. And he um, was constantly, you know, pushing their buttons and, and they just reacted with such, like Jeremiah said, grace towards him. And they forgave him and they just knew he couldn't control his body and that it wasn't because of anything he was, you know, doing that he was hurting them. He couldn't stop. And they understood that. And it was the most amazing thing.
1: This is a rough story. When people are listening to it, they're probably thinking, you didn't keep him, right? I mean, you didn't keep him with the kids. And so when we come back, you're listening to Adoption Now. I'm April Fallon. I'm talking to Jeremiah and Jenny. We're talking about a really hard story. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happened with Joshua and how the family changed and the decisions that they had to make that were really hard. Stay tuned. You're listening to Adoption Now. Flagler is tuned to the mighty 670 KLT Denver. Hi, this is April Fallon, the host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. Do you have an adoption story you'd like to tell? We'd love to hear it. You can help so many people on the same adoption journey. Radio may seem scary, but the best part about sharing your story is sharing your heart about children. Visit our website at adoption-now.com to submit your story.
2: Faith and Family Radio, KLT Denver.
1: Welcome back to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today we're talking to Jeremiah and Jenny who adopted through the foster care system. This is a really hard story for you guys to tell. I mean, there's been so many things that you have gone through and you went into it excited and feeling like God had called you to it. And you guys have been through so much and it's been exhausting fighting for this child, trying to work with the state, having people in your home. Having a child come to you that you love, but they have um, serious delays and trauma. And now we are working with the birth mom, and you thought it was going to be over at 12 months, he was going to be finalized. And now we're pushed into 18 months. And it just doesn't seem like it's ending. I mean, wasn't there a place where you said, We can't do this? I mean, he's going to have to find another home. He's, you know, our children, even though they're loving towards him, are we doing the right thing for them? I mean, where did that change and what happened? Well,
2: 18 months in was when they finally terminated uh, parental rights. And then we waited another year after that to finalize the adoption. So we were two and a half years in before we actually had finalized the adoption. So it was a very long road. And I think that in the months for me, in the months where we had to fight for him and his well-being, where... The county was saying they were going to send him home and we knew it was a dangerous situation and they knew it was a dangerous situation, but they felt like they needed to see something bad happen to finally close this case. And there were just these times like that where we were so worried about him and where we really felt like we had to pray and just protect this child where things shifted in my heart to, um, I can't see anything bad happen to him. And I will do whatever it takes to make sure he is safe. And that was when I was able to, I think switch in my mind and, um, really feel like he was my son and I would do anything.
0: For me, it was uh, a little different because I felt like from the very beginning that he's my son. So in, in, and what I mean by that is that it was as if he was my biological son, like I do not have the choice to give him back. But the struggle was how to love him in while he was with us, how to be affectionate towards him and how, and it still is, and how to, um, to father him, not just allow him to be part of our family. And so I don't know that there was ever a moment for me that I chose to say like, nope, we got to keep him no matter what, as much as it was just the choice has already been made. Um, that being said, I mean, we had many, many conversations of, all right, should we make the phone call? <laughs> or what What are our options here? And But the conversation just always ended with our option is just to keep going.
1: Because he didn't attach to you right away. He actually did opposite things. And was that learning disorder more than it was anger? No, I mean, he did attach to us very
2: quickly. Um, He especially attached to Jeremiah because he had never had a dad. And so it was easy for him to attach to Jer. And then with me, he had, you know, he called me mom and he called his birth mom, other mom. And he just had this idea in his mind that he had two moms. So he was very attached to us. The difficulty was um, that he was also being pulled back and forth between these two moms. And he was almost put in situations by caseworkers and other people where he was asked questions like, you need to choose a mom, and you where do you want to live, and things that no little boy should ever have to feel like he's making a decision for his life. And that was what um, I think was difficult and where a lot of the aggression came out and a lot of the raging and a lot of the violence was out of these days where he felt completely out of control. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like now that it's finalized, he's changed? Only recently. I think, uh, you know, we finalized in September of last year, and that fall was the worst four months of our life. He, I don't know if he was just finally exhaling, the adoption's final, we can move forward or what, but his guard came down and he uh, raged for four to six hours a day, every day for four months. And he, we had him home, I homeschooled the other kids, we had him home, he would rage and rage and rage and I would try to homeschool the other kids through it. We would try to take breaks. I spent a lot of days home with just him while he worked through these emotions, and Jer would take the other kids out of the house so they could have a break. It was the most difficult period of our life as a family.
1: How did the kids do at that time?
0: I don't remember them being anything but... Loving. Loving. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's my own rose-colored glasses, but...
2: They were a little annoyed when, you know, our oldest was trying to do algebra, and there was a screaming six-year-old in the background, but they were very gracious through the whole thing. They still are. I don't think they'll remember this journey with um, the amount of hardness as we remember the
1: journey. You changed his name from Jerome to Joshua. Was he excited about that? Yes, he was very excited. He really had wanted his to be a
2: part of our family from the beginning, and he um, that had just always been something he talked about. I just want to be like the other kids. I just want to be the same. And so we really tried to make as much of his life the same as it was for the other kids. We kept him home and homeschooled. And, and we um, just did all the same things with him that we did with everybody else so that he never felt any different. So what
1: changed in that four months of the raging after the adoption? We finally decided um, to do medication with him. Really? And how did you come
2: to that decision? Uh, We were in therapy with a new therapist and uh, just going over some of the kind of issues we were seeing in the behavioral problems. Um, He was very impulsive um, and violent and he had been kicked out of a school and kicked out of different activities for just his aggression. And we were kind of at the end of our rope and she said, why don't you go to Children's and get a full valve and let's see what is going on in his brain so we can sort through this mess. And so after the valve, the results came back and he had basically 99% of the symptoms of ADHD. And so we were able to get him started on a drug for ADHD during the day. And then we also have him on um, clonidine which is the trauma drug at night so he is uh, medication 24 hours a day right now how old is he now he's six and a half almost
1: seven so as soon as you started putting him on the medication you saw a difference
0: yes it was I, immediate it <clears throat> with the medication it's I mean I, I've always been the like you know boys are boys and don't try to make them sit in a class and stare at a wall and you won't have to medicate them and so I, we've always been very against um, medication for that kind of thing, and it was just yet another thing that uh, that God humbled us about by having this like blanket opinion about something that, and then we walk through the circumstance in which there is no other option. Um, I mean, his uh, his physical makeup of his brain was changed by trauma, and that has to be counteracted. Um, so.
1: People often say love is enough. Probably at some point you guys said it. I know Noah and I have said it. Love is enough. You just go into it, you know, 110. God's going to take care of everything. It's going to be awesome. And although love is so important and does change things, trauma changes things as well. And for a little person who doesn't know how to come down after seeing such horrible things, experiencing things, fear, constant fear. We can't even imagine doing, you know, giving a child medication, but we also can't even imagine that sort of trauma and that, and what he lived through. And so I think that that's just an important point for our listeners, because maybe you're in a place right now where you have a child and you don't know what to do, and your family is just upside down and you love him or her and you just you don't know how to make it right maybe going down this path is something that is for you or maybe god is saying just let's just take this one step at a time you know obviously you guys came to a place where you trusted the people taking care of him and your family is kind of coming to a place where now you have a little bit more unity do you see um in the future that he'll always be on it
2: I'm not sure. I've We have friends whose kids have gone on medication for a little while and then eventually been able to come off. But at least for the next few years, I see this as being the way our family is going to function. His therapist had said something that really stuck with me. She said that right now what you need more than anything in your home and with Joshua is connection. And his impulsiveness and the hyperactivity and these Aggressive behaviors were making our life hard. Where I was struggling to connect with him and I was struggling to foster a connection with him on a day to day basis. And the medication just helps everybody come down a couple of notches. It helps his impulsivity um, go away and just helps him be a little calmer. And we're able to connect better now. And going forward with you know healing from trauma, and um, just our life as a family, I think that that's the most important thing. And we're if we need medication to get to that place, then we're fine with it. And
1: how are you guys healing from the trauma?
0: Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I think it, it it's just the the just keep going thing. I mean, we uh, as, for our marriage we try to. Um, you know, just do the typical, you know, go out on dates and spend time together. And um, you know, I think it's really one of those things that has made us realize the importance of our bond and our connection to lead our family, because if that's not there and if we're struggling with that, then there is no possible way we can walk through this uh, circumstance. Mm -hmm. So.
2: We rely a lot on friends. We have a lot of friends who've adopted and it helps when you're surrounded by people who can relate and who don't think you're a horrible, mean mom when you're stressed at the end of the day and you just can't hear another word from your child. And they just understand our life. And it's wonderful to have people around you like that. And we have my mom and Jerry's parents in town who they share some of the load as much as they can with us when we need breaks and uh, we were actually, yesterday, um, he had his first day of school at the same school that he had been kicked out of last year. And it was successful. And I think that right now, we can look forward to the future with a little more hope than we've had in the last three years for
1: the first time. He is letting you parent him. And I think that that is one thing that's really difficult for people to understand is that sometimes children come into the home and they they won't let you parent them. I mean, even Lily, um, our second, who's you know the one that we really have to put it all in for her, she did not let us parent her. She was an infant, and it was the worst feeling to feel like I couldn't mother her. And why was it working with AJ? Why was it working? Why, you know, and you probably thought that with your biological children. It's like, it's working with them. I mean, I'm parenting them. And when you're fighting against a child to let them take, you know, you want to take care of them. You want to be that person. That's a really long process sometimes. And you guys have really fought that. And um, there's been moments I know where you thought, I, I, I feel like I'm failing. I'm feeling I'm failing as a father. I feel like I'm failing as a mother. And there are other people who are coming around you saying, nope, you're not failing this is exhausting. We'll get there. And it sounds like you're kind of turning a corner to a place where he he's going to let you do that. And you guys are going to grow stronger together. But what would you say to a family who's sitting in front of you and saying, I'm so excited. We're going to start the, the process of foster care. And they told us it's going to be like really easy and quick.
0: <laughs> After I roll my eyes and laugh, <laughs> I would uh, do my best to just... I guess, encourage them to keep going no matter what. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, in the beginning part, you the said beginning. you you talk them out of it.
0: Right. Once they've made the decision.
1: You just got to encourage You just got to
0: go. You just got to go. I mean, I would absolutely make sure that they know they've made the decision. And, and once they have, um, like I said before, I don't think there's any turning back once you've made the decision. It's just it is what it is.
2: I think I would encourage them to hear as many stories from adoptive families as they can and to really go into it with a preparedness at what can happen. I remember actually with you and Noah, we went to an adoption group, Jerry and I and April and Noah, very early on before either of us had adopted. And we heard a story that freaked us out. From another family who had had police come to their house and there had been a knife involved and we just left thinking that was the craziest thing i've ever heard those i don't even know what that was that was the worst support group ever and now i look back at that and i'm like that could be us in a couple of years like we could have that story in our home and at the time we would have never believed that
1: exactly because right. like all of us went forward and adopted because even when people say their stories, sometimes it's for the back burner until you're in that situation. And sometimes you're right in the middle of it. So it can encourage what we do now is when people ask us about adoption, instead of saying, we, we say, what do you think it is? What do you think it's mm-hmm. going to be like? And then everybody ha, 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 laughs and we say, we're just going to be here for you because that's all we can really do. Because when, it all falls apart or when your heart is broken or when you get a child that is so difficult what those people need is support and we get it and we're here and that's what we really want adoption now to be is we are just telling stories for experiences and support and here's a family who's really been through it here's Jeremiah and Jenny they have fought the fight that God has asked them to fight for this child and it's a day at a time and it's not roses and it wasn't, you know, the easiest thing you've ever done in your life. But what I can tell is that what God is doing in you is so deep. Your your faith is now something that's not just something that was taught to you or you read it. It's got to be really deep in there. Mm-hmm. And so what comes out of you is something that has been uh, paid for. Does that make sense? It's not a yeah. cheap faith because now you have put the time in and you have paid that price and... I just want to encourage you, the wisdom that is going to come from you guys as parents and what you're going to do for other people is going to be very deep and very rich. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about something that you're really passionate about, the Justice Run. You guys are both involved in uh, anti-sex trafficking. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. The Justice Run Run is an event that we
2: do every October in Littleton. Uh, It's a 5K, 10K race at the Hudson Gardens, and this year it's on October 2nd. And all of the money raised from all of the registrations, sponsorships, booths, everything goes directly to nonprofits who are already working to fight human trafficking on some level or another.
1: It's interesting to me that adoption and human trafficking, they go together. Yeah. Um, when we were in Florida and we were talking to birth moms, this birth mom told us a story that was many birth mom story out there that she had been trafficked. She'd been taken from a different state. She came down to get a job and the person that connected with her dropped her off at a pimp's house and her and her sister, they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have any money. And so in order to make that money back, they had to work. The sister contracted AIDS the birth mother started getting pregnant. She, and you know, she was on her ninth pregnancy and she didn't know anything else besides being trafficked. And it, it was very strange for me because, um, sometimes you think of this as in Cambodia or like a third world country, right? And we need to, to be working in those countries as well. I agree with that, but it's happening here in the United States and you're seeing that. Yes, it happens in
2: Denver quite a bit. Uh, We were talking to a Lakewood police officer the other day who said he sees it more and more every year um, in Denver, and he is just shocked at how often they are coming across trafficking situations in our city. And there are many nonprofits that are working to help Uh, the girls that are rescued right here in Denver. And we just want to come alongside of them and help them raise the money they need and the volunteers they need and just have support in our community to continue with the work that they do. And that's why we started the Justice Run was to come alongside those
1: nonprofits who are already doing amazing things. Adoption Now will be there as well. We are a big supporter of the Justice Run. I think we ran even the first race. Um, It's a super fun run and the kids can run, all of our kids. I'm, I'm pretty sure even my three-year-old is going to, you know, take a run. She's going to be excited. And there's so many things to do for the kids, so many different people to meet. There's so many booths and so many different things that you can enjoy at the Justice Run. You don't only have to run. So when is it and how can people sign up? It's October 2nd at the Hudson Gardens. And you can go to
2: www.thejusticerun.com to sign up. Again, thank you too for being on.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you, April. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook. And remember, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week.